I'm Amy Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55 KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. Ever thought about maybe taking a practice retirement? Steve and I talk about how you can use the pay time off that you stashed away and your boss just wants you to use already. We also talk about what long-term investors should look for in exchange-traded funds and how to use payment apps a little more securely, because if you're not on Venmo, I'm telling you, your kids probably are. Finally, I interviewed Jeff Ostrowski, who's an analyst for Bankrate.com, about the often forgotten cost of buying an older home. Are you feeling a little burned out? Well, tonight we've got an idea for you that can maybe help you get the most out of your salary and also help get you ready for retirement. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovec. You know, Steve, we came out of this pandemic and I know so many people who kind of felt like, I'm not going to travel anywhere. Uh, It's not safe to go anywhere, so I'm not going to take any time off, right? And that just Mm -hmm. burned a ton of people out. And I think some of us have gotten out there. You particularly have traveled and traveled and traveled. (laughs) I have never had a problem with taking time (laughs) off, Amy. Never. There's a lot of people who are now starting to say, oh, this Delta variant, you know, we've seen, yeah. uh, you know, uh, flights get, you know, the, the number of people booking flights decrease pretty substantially, people that aren't traveling as much anymore. And I think that could be leading to a lot of people uh, going into this fall kind of burned out about work. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there there was the, the just joy of getting the vaccines out. People um, signed up, got the vaccines. OK, it's over. Let's go ahead and see the kids, see the grandkids. Let's go on that trip we couldn't do last year. And, and this Delta variant is serious. And, and a lot of people, especially internationally, um, they're rethinking their their travel plans. I mean, you've got some countries like Canada, um, United Kingdom, they've lifted their travel uh, restrictions against Americans, but it doesn't mean you could just zip around anytime you want. You've still got to get back to this country. There's the question of what if I get COVID while I'm overseas? Will I get back in the United States? Should I get travel insurance? Does my travel insurance cover me specific to COVID? Because some policies do not. And, and the people that were burnt out before because they weren't taking vacation time, well, if you're going to cancel the trip that you've been putting off for a year and a half and just go back to work, this you're going to be more burnt out, and, and companies are realizing this. We mentioned, like, Canada, right, easing restrictions on people coming in. Yeah. Mexico, uh, you know, I know a family here in northern Kentucky who who went to Mexico on a trip. Everyone was feeling fine, but they had to get tested to come back in. Well, two of the kids felt great, but they did test positive for COVID. That family was laid up in a hotel room for two more weeks, right, couldn't wow. even leave the room. You think about how many plans go haywire because of that and i have no idea i'm assuming they have to pay for that as well Well, that would be my question uh who pays for that i I mean would your health insurance company pay for it no did you buy travel insurance maybe but would it cover that um what about what about your job yeah you know hey i'm sorry i'm stuck in a foreign country well that's your that's your problem you're the one that that went there in the first place Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you're asking you're pulling in a lot of favors if that happens to you. And I I think a lot of people are just saying, I I don't want to deal with that. You know, and and here's one that surprised the heck out of me. Price Waterhouse Coopers, huge employer. They're actually so I mean, they're so concerned about employees that are burnt out. They're offering workers two hundred and fifty bucks each time they take 40 consecutive hours off. 
Now, I, I did a little bit of math. I've got a second career brewing right here. I, I mean, if, if I had that offer, okay, I, I, yeah, 250 bucks for every 40 hours, I'll take 10 times 40 hours. How's that sound? I know, you know? right? But, that, that, but, you know, there's a serious concern that, all right, if you can't recharge your batteries, you're not doing yourself or your company any good. We want you off, and we want you not thinking about work. That, that's the key. Well, and let's talk about what's happened during this pandemic. I mean, for people who are working remotely, the the lines, the border, the boundaries between home and work have been blurred so significantly yeah. that, you know, many are checking emails at night and taking calls from bosses. And, I, you know, I've had Zoom calls put on my calendar for, you know, around the show time, uh, you know, in the okay. evening. And so, you know, you look at these things and you're like, wait a second, this this never happened before. And so when you're constantly connected to work and you're not yeah. disconnecting at all, uh, and, and if you're thinking, well, I can't really go anywhere safely right now, I'm not comfortable with it. Well, I think that's why companies like PricewaterhouseCooper are saying, no, 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 we don't care if you go anywhere or not. You just have to get away from work. In fact, big companies like uh, LinkedIn, um, there's the dating app company Bumble, uh, mm -hmm. financial software provider into it. They've actually shut down for a week at a time. Just so they said, you're not taking time off. We need you to fully disconnect. We know it's better for your productivity when you come yeah. back. So we're going to force you to get away from work. Uh, I've never seen companies make make decisions like this before. This is unprecedented. Not not in the United States. In Europe, it's fairly yeah. common. Oh, it's August. Uh, nobody's working. Right. You know, and, and, and that's one thing that makes America great is, you know, we are, I, you know, one of the most, if not the most productive countries in the world. But, you know, it's at a price if you're always plugged. And, and this is the problem with technology. And, and technology can be a great tool. But if you never unplug, Amy, it, it's it's you're never recharging your battery. And I, I mean, I got to ask you, you, you were gone, you got, you got married and, and you took some time off. Did you find yourself checking your, your emails? So our team makes fun of me a lot because I'm 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 an obsessive You're email checker. Yeah. I have I respond to emails sometimes on the weekends or ridiculous hours. Um, I checked it far less than I normally do. Um, which, <laughs> Define which is, far less. Come on, which now. is a victory for me. So someone did mention that they had um, you know put something through that I did respond to once or twice. But other than yeah. that, I think I was pretty good. But I had to seriously say to myself. I'm not going to check my phone. I'm going to take yeah. my phone with me for pictures, and that is it. Um, and maybe before I went to bed, I would kind of click through a few emails or whatever. But I was able to, you know, do a little better than I normally do. And and, and Steve, to your point too, I'm someone who likes to take vacations. I often live from yeah. vacation to vacation, yeah. uh, so I don't have t I don't have trouble taking the time off, but I do have trouble completely disconnecting. But we know there's a lot of you out there who are just hesitant to take time off altogether. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we talk about, are you taking your time off? Are you using your benefit? And Steve, I think a lot of people don't really think of your time off in the way that it is, but th there's a, a monetary amount, right, tied to that. And you're essentially taking, saying to your boss, like, hey, I don't want that money. I don't need well, that yeah. money right now. Yeah, and, and and again, that's that's something I've never had a problem with. But I'll tell you what I have seen over over the past um, year: the the pandemic forced a lot of people 
to, to, okay, well, I'm rethinking, you know, my work schedule and I'm home a lot more or I'm working from home. Hey, this is kind of neat. I'm getting these honeydew projects done and, and I'm still clocked in and, and I'm enjoying doing stuff on my days off that, uh, I'm, you know, I, I, can, I can take a, a staycation and, and really recharge my batteries. And, Amy, one of the things I found is I, I call it a practice retirement, but there, there were people over the past year, year and a half that I've spoken with that said, you know what, I enjoyed this so much. Hey, Steve, I want you to redo my plan and just see how it works if I retired right now. And, and that's kind of a fun exercise for me. I, I mean, that's the value yeah. of a financial plan it, it, is you can play these what-if scenarios without, you know, blabbing it to the world, telling your boss and, and you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And, and I'll tell you what, more than a couple of them came back and w- when I updated their plan as, oh, no, you can afford to retire now and you won't have quite as much to leave your kids, but I think they'll be okay with a million and a half instead of $2 million. You, you know, and, and when you say that to somebody who's, let's say, 62, 63, 64, and just assume they had to work till 65 or 66, you want to see a smile. I mean, that's an ear-to-ear grin. So I I, I think a practice retirement, you don't have to do it that way. You you can actually just book two weeks at a time for a vacation and, and see how it feels. Try it on for size. I know. You know, for years on the show, we've advocated for taking a practice retirement, right? If you've got some vacation time built up, you know, maybe you put a week or two together, uh, you stay home, you see what it's like to be with a spouse all day, every day, you see what your plans are. But we kind of got that during this pandemic. We were forced into it when you couldn't go to work anymore. And Steve, you're talking about, you know, a lot of people who said, I like this. On the flip side, there's a lot of people who were like, get me back into the office as quickly yeah. as possible. Well, that's good information too, right? You're educating yourself about would this work for me right now? Would it not? Or what do we need to figure out? Can I can I figure out where I'd like to volunteer? Can I figure out some more social groups that I can get involved with before I look at retiring that might help me fill up my days and fill up my schedule? You know, I think there's just a lot of people uh, or forced into a practice retirement and learned a lot about themselves, yeah. especially those who are closing in on that retirement age. No, no question. I, I've talked about my dad in the past, but he, he did it the wrong way and he would be the first to admit it. I, I mean, some people want to retire and just have this picture in their head of, wow, it's the great life. I don't have to get up anymore. I don't have the pressure. I don't have to deal with my boss. And he found that without outside hobbies, without uh, having uh, volunteer situations that he, he enjoyed, um, it took him about a year and a half to adjust and, and it was not pretty. Well, people during the pandemic had a chance, like you you called it a practice retirement. And if you found out that you were constantly thinking about the office, constantly thinking about work, that should be a learning experience that, hey, maybe I need to take on some other interests that will last after I'm done work so that when I wake up in the morning, I have a purpose. And that is so important, Amy, that, you know, it's not just retirement and having enough money to live comfortably. It's having a purpose. It's why did I get up? What what do I want to do? And having two or three choices of what you want to do is a great thing. When I hear from somebody in retirement, I don't know how I ever work, work into the picture. I know they're doing well because yeah. that tells me they're busy, they're fulfilled, they're enjoying life. Life is for living. It's not for working. Working is a tool to make the money to enjoy life in my world. And, and practice retirement, great way to figure out where you need to improve.
And because Steve and I both admit that we excel at making sure that we get our vacations in, you know, here's some tips on if you are someone who struggles to get away from the office and to do it well, set that out of office message. Don't read the work emails when you're away. I'm working on that one. But ease back into work after vacation. Um, you know, if you're going to just go full speed ahead coming back out of it, then we've seen that the, the relaxation and everything you've gotten from that time off absolutely dissipate immediately. So, you know, kind of wade your way back in. You don't have to throw yourself back in. Here's a Simply Money point. Use your vacation. Understand, it's part of your salary. Your boss wants you to use it. Is the Delta variant changing your back-to-office plans? For many companies, turns out that's not the case. Steve, a lot of companies, kind of starting in June, July, started heading back to the office. And even with the Delta variant out there, uh, a lot of them are staying there. Yeah, it's true. And I, I did I did a very small sample size today. Um, the sample size was two, my two sons. <laughs> and, and, you know, co- companies, it, it, you're going to get whiplash trying to figure out what the latest policy is with yes. some companies. But it'd know, be tough every- to be in HR right now. Oh, can you imagine? No. No, I, I, everybody's playing it, obviously, really cautious. I mean, the numbers are rising with, with the Delta yeah. variant, so there, there's some legitimate concern. And what I'm finding is most companies are seem to be uh, extending the work from home. And, and, you know, they're keeping it a very, very soft uh, uh, date of when you're going to start going back to hybrid. I, I, I know one son, um, they're, they're going to do uh, hybrid work from home probably for the duration, whereas the uh, the other son, um, no, they're going to get back to the office and, and they're going to stay in the office and it's going to be back to normal. But there, there, there was a recent uh, survey from Morning Consult uh, that found that most workers already are in the office. Uh, 8% of employees said that their companies had adopted a permanent work-for-home policy. 7% said their companies had not yet announced a policy. So, you know, th- this change that started about a year and a half ago, Amy, some companies are saying, no, we could deal with work from home. We like it. The employees like it. And we're going to make this long term. Well, and you, you mentioned, you know, 7% of companies haven't figured out what they're going to do yet. I think that goes back to uh, HR and trying to figure everything out and, you know, yeah. figuring out, okay, you've got probably vaccinated workers in with unvaccinated workers. And how do you monitor all of that? Well, we've kind of seen governments and companies, some of them taking like a, a carrot approach, right, incentivizing their people. Um, but now there's some companies that are looking at having unvaccinated workers paying more for their health insurance by as much as 50 bucks more per yeah. paycheck. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a benefits consulting firm that's done this research. Uh, and on the flip side, Steve, you can see where someone's going to say, okay, well, I am vaccinated, right? So I might cost you less for health insurance. So I want a discount on my health insurance, just something else, right? Another something that these HR departments are going to have to wade through yeah. as yeah. employees and bosses are trying to figure all of this out. And this is emotional. I, I remember, I mean, it used to be if you work for a big company, you're in their group plan and, and um, okay, whatever you did in, in you know, your, your spare time was your business and, and everybody paid the same premium. And, and I remember when they first started charging more for smokers, we, we were doing some consulting work at a pretty large employer in Cincinnati. And I remember employees, they were hot. I mean, the smokers were hot. They can't make me pay this much more because I smoke. It's none of their business. Well, they kind of can. I, I mean, the employment law seems to be kind of worked out on that. And, and you know, I, we're, if they can do it for smokers, can they do it for other groups? Can they do it for unvaccinated individuals? There is precedent there, yeah. there, there, there is. But, you know, where, where do you draw the line? Okay, I'm 20 pounds overweight. 
Do I pay a higher premium than somebody who's not 20 pounds overweight because I am at a higher risk for diabetes and, you know, all the associated impacts? So, yeah, this is especially with vaccinations, unvaccinated, um, and uh, the, the way it's become politicized. This, this is a hot button, and it looks like some companies are willing to, to charge more to people who have not gotten their vaccines. Yeah, chalk this up as the latest kind of sticky subject in this post-COVID world. Uh, I'm sure there'll be many more coming. Listen, you hear us often talk about the benefits of investing in low-cost exchange-traded funds and mutual funds, but not all of those are created equal. And sometimes it's hard to figure out, okay, what's the difference, right? What are they actually talking about here? So tonight, we're going to break it down for you. Yeah, and and one of the basic things that you're hearing more and more about, but people don't necessarily understand the differences between exchange-traded funds and mutual funds. And in simply money terms, a mutual fund most people are comfortable with. They, they've been around since the, the 30s and 40s, and you give money to a mutual fund, and somebody at that fund decides, I'm going to buy Procter & Gamble, or I'm going to buy who knows what with it. Um, I know I'm buying into the stock market, or it's a bond mutual fund. I know I'm buying into the bond market. But the point is there is somebody or a team of people that are deciding what to do with that money and not just buy but sell also and what you're hoping for is that they continue a good track record and grow your money exchange traded funds are kind of the same idea but just cut out the person making the decision of buying and selling so in other words if you're paying a team of crack experts to go out and buy and sell stocks and make you lots of money in a mutual fund, you might have internal fees of about 1%, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. An exchange-traded fund doesn't have that component. Once you send your money in, if it's a standard and poor's 500 fund, that $100, for example, gets split between 500 of the largest U.S. companies. There's really no thought going into it, and they're not buying and selling. It's strictly bookkeeping from that point on. So if there's no buying or selling, you don't have to pay people to make those decisions, and your internal costs are going to be a fraction of what you pay a mutual fund to make those decisions. In other words, you keep more of what you make in an exchange-traded fund, but now you don't have buying and selling. So you're watching generally an index, and and you know what that index owns. So it's a different approach called passive investing, where you're not actively making any changes, whereas mutual funds are active investments, and somebody is buying and selling. Yeah, I mean, and the difference, you know, often those actively managed funds uh, don't do as well as the passively managed funds. So uh, it's really kind of what the best investment is for you, and you just need to make sure that they're diversified. Here's the Simply Money point. ETFs and mutual funds are some of the best investments for your retirement savings. Just make sure you keep it simple and diversified. Are you on payment apps? Well, there are some ways that you need to know that you can navigate them a little more safely. Steve, I was a a late adopter. I've got some friends in New York and bigger cities that have been on these apps forever. I was a late adopter. They made fun of me for I was still sending checks to someone in the mail. I am on Venmo now. But I so yeah, I am. Uh, And and I swore by it because I thought, oh, my gosh, I haven't written a check in so long. This makes life so much easier. And then, you know, I just got married. And so around the wedding, um, I was Venmoing the florist, right? So mm-hmm. someone who, uh, and I Venmoed it to the wrong person. Oh, can like you get that a, back? 
a sizable right yeah. amount of money and was like nauseous about it. Now I did yeah. contact Venmo and they said, we'll help you this one time. Uh, I had to fill out all of this paperwork about who I accidentally sent to versus so it was like, you know, someone with the same name, but like a one behind it. And so wow. I accidentally sent to the, so anyway, these things can go very wrong if yeah. not used properly. Um, but 61% of adults who use the internet um, have transferred money digitally. So you, this is just over the past year compared with 51%. So these are becoming more and more popular. Uh, and, and there's differences. If you're someone who was on PayPal, well, it still reigns for large payments because there's no fees uh, and you won't be charged for payments unless you pay them from a credit card. Um, there's other protections protections there if you buy something that doesn't come through paypal has the best protection for you well you know 61 percent of adults um transferred money digitally i guess on the other 39 <laughs> percent I, I i mean the condescending looks that you get from at, at least that i get when somebody says well let me just venmo that to you um duh, can't do it nah, nope don't know how nope <laughs> you know it's not, not it's, on there I, it, but you know here again it, it that kind of stuff i i'm I, my life is not less because I don't use them. That's that's. But my let me ask you this: it. You've got two adult sons. Yeah. Do they both use this? Yes, yes, yeah. and they have asked me to just you know if we're you know they uh, need to send money, uh, they've asked me to do that. Now nah, I drop a check in the mail. Yeah, <laughs> I am truly old. Well, okay, so for privacy with these apps, all of them can collect and store your personal information, which is, of course, you know, an issue for some. Um, and a lot of them, though, admit that they'll share your information with companies that provide third-party analytics. So something to keep an eye on there, too. Yeah, and, and, and you know, what, what surprised me is Venmo is actually owned by PayPal, yet they have totally different fee structures. So, yeah, let's um, uh, know exactly which application you're using and, and what, the, what the details are about security. Very important. Convenience versus security. Always good to know what you're giving up in order to get that convenience. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, the talk station. the woes of building a new house right now crazy trying to find land and materials and workers which means there's a lot of you who are buying older homes and what does that mean joining us tonight with some interesting perspective on that jeff ostrowski an analyst for bankrate.com jeff what you're saying is that the average house keeps getting a little older right yeah, yeah. According to the Census Bureau stats, the uh, the median age of American homes has been edging up, and now we're at 39 years old. So, I mean, typically the uh, the average home is uh, is older than the millennial generation. So, you know, about a generation ago, it was pretty common that uh, when you went home shopping, you you went to the the new home development, you toured some models, and you you picked out your piece of dirt. And that's really not the case as much anymore. It's um, the builders have not ramped up their their production since the Great Recession. There's just not as much land available, and so you know by by necessity, really more so than by choice, uh, a lot of home buyers are, are looking at, at existing homes. And so, what is your advice then? Um, you know, if you're saying that you know, ten, fifteen years ago, we were looking at brand new houses, uh, you know, which when you move into them, seemingly no issues. Now, if we're looking at buying older homes, what do we need to keep in mind? 
Yeah, and that's where a lot of mystery and suspense comes in because you can be looking at two almost identical homes built next door to each other by the same builder in the same year. And depending on how they've been maintained over the decades, they could have very different issues and and they could stick you with very different bills. I like Um, that you said mystery and suspense rather than like frustration, aggravation. (laughs) It's a nice way of putting that. as someone who uh, who once had the, the refrigerator of his fixer-upper in his living room for a long time, I could say mm-hmm. frustration and aggravation. But <laughs> um, <laughs> when you're in the in the buying process and the shopping process, the, the frustration and aggravation hasn't quite set in yet. That's that usually happens in about six to nine months when you're thinking, uh. all right, when is this project going to be done? Okay, so some Americans are looking are out there looking for what's legitimately fixer-uppers. Um, is that increasing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was a, a survey by TD Bank recently, which is a, a fairly large bank, um, saying, you know, I, I can't remember the precise numbers, but some a significant percentage of, of home shoppers were, were looking at fixer-uppers because that was really all that was available. Um, and so I guess the best advice is just be realistic about both your financial wherewithal and how much work this house needs. I mean, it's it's one thing if you just don't like the Formica counters and the linoleum floors, but you can live with them for a couple of years while you save up money. And it's another thing if you're going to be diving into a, a major six-figure renovation project right away. And those are so that those are very different scenarios. That, you know, they both fall under the broad category of fixer-upper, but with with different financial demands in each case. Jeff, I want to get your take on this because I've heard about this happening several, several times recently with this crazy hot real estate market, all these bidding wars. Uh, there's a lot of people who are buying houses in waiving inspections. Uh, and if you're talking about the average home being roughly 40 years old, well, there's going to be issues with those houses that you're not going to know about until after you've, you know, moved in. Yeah, exactly. And so the the smart move is to waive the inspection contingency. So if, if you're in a competitive situation and your market is so hot that the only way you can get the house is to, to assure the, the seller that you're not going to come back and negotiate over the scuffed paint or a, a scratch on the wall, um, then, yes, waive, waive the inspection as a condition of your offer, but don't skip the uh, inspection altogether. So you can still... Uh, Say, hey, I, I'm seller. I'm, I'm waiving the contingency, but I still want to hire an inspector to do my to do a home inspection for my own purposes. Um, and so, in that case, you might have to shell out a few hundred bucks to have an inspector come out and scrutinize the home. Um, so, I would just say, uh, waiving inspection means waiving the contingency, but not uh, waiving the actual uh, scrutiny that comes from an inspector. Great advice. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We are joined by Jeff Ostrowski. He is an analyst for Bankrate.com. If you are looking at getting into the real estate market, buying a house, well, buying a new house may not be an option because of how crazy expensive those are. So there's a lot of you maybe looking at older homes. You know, and I think, Jeff... The price of of the brand new home, right? You've got the sticker price up front. The thing about buying an older home is you know what you're paying for it up front, but the upkeep, the repairs, the renovations, well, those can be a different thing entirely. Right, exactly. And that that goes back to some of the mystery and suspense that Mm -hmm. I I talked about earlier. Um, And sort of the old saw, which is pretty true, is, you know, the how much you think you're going to spend is uh, is never what you're really going to spend. You pretty much have to to uh, 
figure you're going to double the the amount you think you're going to um, pay for your your renovations. So, um, so yeah, there there is a lot of uncertainty there. And if you're buying a fixer upper, you just re- really need to be flexible and to to build in some of that uncertainty into your budget and your expectations. As far as that fixer upper too, what's the difference between a, like a, a traditional mortgage and then like a fixer upper loan? Yes, so there are um, options for for buyers, uh, especially first time buyers, are going to be draining their checking account to just to pay the down payment and cover the closing costs, and then that leaves them with no money left to to pay for all these renovations. Um, it, you can put it on your credit cards, but uh, that's that gets a little bit dangerous if you don't pay off your your credit card balances quickly. You could be stuck with double digit interest on on those expenses. Um, but the, the mortgage industry has come up with some workarounds. So one common type of fixer-upper loan is, is issued by the Federal Housing Administration, or, or backed by the FHA, I should say. Mm-hmm. And that's the FHA 203K loan. And so that that's a, a type of mortgage that allows you to borrow not against the purchase price, but against the future value after renovations. And so say that you're paying 300 grand, but you think it's going to be worth 400 after you got the kitchen and, and replaced the bathrooms, then the, the FHA 203K loan lets you uh, borrow against the $400,000 future value as opposed to the $300,000 purchase price. Yeah, interesting option there. Okay, so Jeff, if you had to say number one piece of advice that you are you would give to someone looking to buy a house and thinking, well, I'm probably going to end up with a house that's older rather than something that's brand new, what do you say to them? Um, well, I, I would say uh, go ahead. That's really the most realistic option in today's market where new homes are in short supply and very expensive. And... Um, I guess two pieces of advice. Number one would be just uh, have realistic expectations, understand you're going to spend a lot of money and the the amount of money is going to be a moving target. And then number two, take that home inspection process really seriously. We we talked about uh, even if you waive the the inspection contingency, still hire the inspector. Um, So either way, when you're buying a house, don't just uh, hang out in the kitchen or or read your phone while the inspector is, is doing his job. Try to follow him around. Um, uh, you, it might be hard to, to stay six feet away if you're crawling into the attic or something, but uh, just really try to, to stick with the inspector and ask him to explain what he's seeing as he goes through the house. And that's, uh, that's a good way for you to quickly get to know the, uh, the, the house and any, any potential problems that, uh, that could lurk for, uh, for when you become the owner. Great advice. The average age of American home getting older around 39 years. If you're looking to buy one of them, you got to go into it with eyes wide open. Thanks to Jeff Ostrowski, an analyst for Bankrate.com for the great advice tonight. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. If you could do us a favor, send the show to a friend. If you think they may benefit from it too, at All Worth Financial, we help you retire better.